Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week we talk about the chaos surrounding the Trump administration in Washington, meet some of the characters in our Bridgeport neighborhood, and hear from two new artists about how they create and produce music in the current environment. Rising local producer Uncle Al appeared on Betty Heredia's ISM show this past Monday to talk about his process, winning the Lumpen Beat Battle with Azarius and how rewarding the Chicago scene has been. The ISM show airs every other Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. Ed Comenda stopped by Radio Free Bridgeport to fill us in on two great neighborhood characters, a priest that is also a psychologist and a one-time currency forger who has become a fine artist. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Bad at Sports debuted on WLPN on Wednesday with a conversation with artist Guy Richard Smith. Smith is the creator of the fictional character Jonathan Gross-Mallerman, and he spoke about his upcoming, upcoming appearance at Acre. Bad at Sports will air every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And Mario Smith spoke with Janice Bond about local art and events at the DuSable Arts Museum. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Lumpen Radio is supported by the Hideout South by Southwest send-off party, and one of the artists appearing on March 11th stopped by Game Changers this week. Fee Lyon, a self-described witch disco artist, blew the doors off with a powerful set. Game Changers airs every other Thursday at 11 a.m. The Trump Diaries. Day 19th, February 9th. An appeals court dealt Trump a stinging rebuke, rejecting out of hand the government's case for the Muslim ban. The three-judge panel suggesting that the ban did not advance national security said the administration had shown no evidence that anyone from the seven nations targeted by the ban had committed terrorist acts in the United States. The ruling also rejected Trump's claim that courts are powerless to review a president's national security assessments. Quote, it is beyond question, the decision said, that the federal judiciary retains the authority to adjudicate constitutional challenges to executive action. Trump reacted badly, vowing immediate action and posting in all caps on Twitter, see you in court, the security of our nation is at stake. At the White House, the president told reporters that the ruling was, quote, a very political decision and predicted that his administration would win an appeal, quote, in my opinion, very easily. Trump's own Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, called the president's attacks on the courts demoralizing and disheartening. The extraordinary comments from the president's own Supreme Court nominee only underscore the corrosive nature of Trump's bitter feud with the judiciary. Trump has repeatedly bashed the judiciary over its litigation surrounding his Muslim ban. And Kellyanne Conway was formally put forth for ethics charges by House Oversight Chair Utah Senator Jason Chavez. Conway said, quote, go buy Ivanka's stuff during a Fox and Friends appearance from a White House briefing room, referring to the president's daughter. Conway may have broken a federal law that prohibits the use of public funds for non-official purposes. The White House said later that Conway had been counseled without elaborating. And Trump's nominee to lead labor sunk into hot water today. Andrew Puzder, the controversial CEO of Hardee's and Carl's Jr., was revealed to have employed an undocumented immigrant. Moreover, it was also revealed that Puzder's ex-wife appeared on Oprah in disguise, leveling serious allegations of domestic abuse against him. Tapes of the appearance were made available to the Senate by Harpo Productions, and four Republican senators refused to commit to support Puzder. Puzder is widely considered to be hostile to organized labor, and has said that he wishes he could have placed all his workers with robots because they don't file for workman's comp or take sick days. Day 20, February 10th. 
stung by the courts. The White House today debated rewriting the Muslim ban and not appealing the decision to the Supreme Court, indicating the administration may try to restore some aspects of the now frozen travel ban or replace it with other face-saving measures. In a signal of the chaos around Trump, different White House staffers said different things. And that chaos was because news broke overnight that Trump's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, had discussed American sanctions against Russia with that country's ambassador well before the election. Flynn may have violated a law against private citizens engaging in diplomacy known as the Logan Act. Moreover, Flynn's actions directly contradict statements made by Trump's own team. The Washington Post first reported the explosive allegations and other news organizations followed up by publishing damaging logs of telephone contacts between Flynn and Russia. Meanwhile, Tom Price was confirmed by another party-line vote of 52 to 47 to lead Health and Human Services. This despite new questions over his financial dealings. Price bought and sold healthcare company stocks often enough as a member of Congress to warrant probes by both federal securities regulators and the House Ethics Committee. Trump's cabinet still remains largely unfilled as his nominees have stalled under ethics investigations. And for the first time, U.S. investigators say they've corroborated some of the communications detailed in the infamous 35-page dossier compiled by a former British intelligence agent. The agencies have not confirmed any of the more salacious aspects of the dossier, but they did inform multiple contacts between senior Russian officials and other officials. Trump also spoke to Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time since taking over the White House. In a reversal, Trump said he would honor America's longstanding one-China policy. Trump raised hackles by accepting a phone call from Taiwan immediately after his election, and President Xi had reportedly refused all contact with Trump since. U.S. immigration authorities also launched a series of raids in at least a half dozen states across the country on Thursday and Friday, sweeping up an unknown number of undocumented immigrants, immigration lawyers and advocates said. The raids, which appeared to target scores of undocumented immigrants, including those without criminal records, marked a sea change in enforcement under Trump. The raids took place in L.A., Atlanta, Wichita, Austin, Dallas, Charlotte, Alexandria, Plant City, Florida, the Hudson Valley region of New York, and Chicago. Some activists suggest the raid are in retaliation for sanctuary city status. Chicago is also a sanctuary city. And Reuters reported that Trump's wall along the U.S.-Mexico border would be a series of fences that would cost as much as $21.6 billion and take more than three years to construct. Reuters was given access to Homeland Security internal reports and the estimated price tag is much higher than the $12 billion figure cited by Trump in his campaign. Trump responded with a tweet claiming the true figure was false model since he had not yet begun to negotiate. Day 21, February 11th. A surreal scene took place at Mar-a-Lago, the country club Trump owns that is dubbed the Winter White House. After North Korea unexpectedly volleyed a ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan, Trump and his guest, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, pulled around a table in full view of guests and diners with aides offering candles and flashlights for Trump to see documents. One of those guests, a retired investor named Richard DeGazio, posted pictures of this scene on his Facebook page showing aides clustered around the two men on the dining terrace. Diagazio later posted photos to Facebook showing the scene in a blatant breach of security. Diagazio also posted a picture of himself with the man he described as carrying the nuclear football. Photos of Abe seem to capture him in a state of disbelief at the whole scene. Day 22, February 12th. It was revealed that federal immigration officials had arrested more than 700 people across at least 11 states last week, including Illinois. It remained unclear whether the actions by ICE were part of regular operations to round up undocumented immigrants with criminal convictions or a new increase under Trump. Trump tried to take credit on Twitter, saying, quote, the crackdown on illegal criminals is merely the keeping of my campaign promise. Gang members, drug dealers, and others are being removed. However, Homeland Security immediately contradicted Trump, saying this was just a normal operation. And Trump's policy advisor, Stephen Miller, made a series of widely criticized appearances on weekend shows. 
Miller made a number of combative statements as well as several outright lies, claiming at one point buses of voters had swayed the New Hampshire elections. Miller also made an unnerving remark about that, saying, quote, it is a fact and you will not deny it. In Mar-a-Lago, Trump was kept largely quiet, tweeting two denunciations of fake news of the mainstream media and one chunk of praise from Miller, claiming he had done a great job. Trump also tweeted a bizarre remark about Mark Cuban, who Trump claimed was, quote, not smart enough to run for president. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders on Sunday called Trump a pathological liar, while Al Franken claimed that a few Republican senators are concerned about the president's mental health. Day 23, February 13th. Michael Flynn reportedly apologized for discussing U.S. sanctions against Russia with the Russian ambassador before Trump's inauguration. The apology was directed most notably to Vice President Michael Pence. A White House official said that Flynn now says he may have discussed sanctions, but cannot be 100% certain. Meanwhile, Trump met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada, striking a largely cordial tone. Trump has called for Canada to halt the admission of refugees, saying that terrorists might slip into the United States. Mr. Trudeau has held out Canada as a haven for refugees. And the White House announced sanctions against Venezuela's vice president on Monday, calling him a drug kingpin. Trump railed against Venezuela's leftist government during the campaign, According to Treasury, Vice President Tarek El Asyami was sanctioned for playing a significant role in the international narcotics trafficking. These sanctions mean that Mr. Al Asyami, 42, will be blocked from financial dealings with Americans and will have any assets here frozen. The accusation that Mr. El Asyami is the next in line for the Venezuelan presidency as a drug trafficker is certain to set a new hostile tone to relations with that country. And the Senate confirmed Stephen T. Nunchen, a former Goldman Sachs banker and Hollywood film financier, to be Treasury Secretary. The vote again was a near party line split of 53 to 40. Mnuchin was Trump's top campaign fundraiser. Day 24, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Trump's world exploded today. First came the resignation of advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn was undone by the revelation that the Justice Department had warned Trump about Flynn weeks ago and said he was vulnerable to blackmail from Russia. Questions continue to grow now over what Trump knew and when he knew it, as the White House was plunged into a full-blown crisis. What was known was that Flynn misled Vice President Mike Pence and other top White House officials about his conversations with the Russian ambassador to the United States. And Justice warned the White House last month that Mr. Flynn lied. Trump had fired Sally Yates, the acting attorney general at the time, after she delivered that warning for refusing to enforce his now-state Muslim ban. At the end of the day, despite backpedaling by Sean Spicer and others, it was evident that Trump had known about the situation for three weeks. Now, Trump tried to change the narrative, tweeting, quote, the real story here is why are there so many illegal leaks coming out of Washington? Will these leaks be happening as I deal on North Korea, etc.? Then came the most difficult hour yet for Trump. First came the Office of Government Ethics recommendation the White House should investigate Kellyanne Conway's plug at Ivanka Trump's fashion line and consider taking disciplinary action. Conway's public endorsement of Ivanka Trump's was a clear violation of the prohibition against misuse of position, and the normal punishment is termination. That was released at 2 o'clock Eastern Time. A half hour later, Jason Shafetz, chair of the House Oversight Committee, announced a letter probing Trump's apparent discussion of sensitive information out in the open this weekend at Mar-a-Lago. Pictures of Trump were posted across social media. Then at 3 o'clock, Mitch McConnell said it was highly likely the Senate would deepen its Russia investigation after Flynn resigned amid questions about whether his December discussion of sanctions broke the law. And finally, Conway deepened her hole after she retweeted a post from a self-proclaimed white nationalist. She tweeted back, quote, love you back. Day 25, February 15th. The New York Times published a major expose in the latest damaging attack on Trump. 
Phone records and intercepted calls showed that Trump's presidential campaign and other Trump associates had constant contact with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election. The FBI and NSA intercepted the communications around the same time they were discovering evidence that Russia was trying to disrupt the presidential election by hacking into the Democratic National Committee. The agencies are still trying to determine if the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians in hacking or on other efforts to influence the election. So far, there is no evidence. However, multiple officials described the situation with alarm. At the same time, Trump had said at a campaign event he had hoped Russian intelligence services had stolen Hillary Clinton's emails and would make them public. As the day goes on, Trump continued to try to blame others for his problems, lashing out again at the nation's intelligence agencies with accusations of illegally leaking information to the media. Trump also tried to claim that it was, quote, a cover-up for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Quote, this Russian connection nonsense is merely an attempt to cover up the many mistakes made in Hillary Clinton's losing campaign. He added, information is being illegally given to the failing New York Times and Washington Post by the intelligence community, just like Russia. Several high-ranking officials from both parties, however, praised both the force to state and the leaks. Also, Andrew Puzder withdrew his name as a nominee for Labor Secretary. The White House had been told earlier in the day that his nomination should be withdrawn. Apparently, seven Republican senators did not support the nominee. He therefore lacked the votes to win confirmation in the Senate. Puzder's personal background and business record, of course, undermined his support on both sides of the aisle. Meanwhile, Trump said the United States would no longer insist on a Palestinian state as part of a peace accord between Israel and Palestine, backing away from the so-called two-state solution. Quote, I can live with either one, said Trump of the two options, a stunning departure from decades of Middle Eastern policy. Palestinians are highly unlikely to accept anything short of a sovereign state, and a single Israeli state would no longer be Jewish, given the faster growth rate of the Arab population. Finally, officials confirmed that a Russian spy ship was patrolling 30 miles off the shore of the naval submarine base in Connecticut today. It was apparently conducting spy operations. Day 26, February 16th. Trump ramped up his attacks in the intelligence community on Thursday, promising to catch the, quote, low-life leakers who supplied the fake news media with information on his ties to Russia, information he dismissed as an excuse for Democratic losses. In a Twitter rant, Trump dismissed the entire Russia story as fake and pledged to hunt down the officials in the government who supplied the details. He demanded an apology from the New York Times and accused the news media of making up stories and sources, and then said he wanted those sources apprehended. The Guardian reported that the scandal hit Deutsche Bank, which is under investigation by the Department of Justice and facing intense regulatory scrutiny, loaned hundreds of millions of dollars to Donald Trump. They are now conducting an internal examination of the president's personal account to gauge whether there are any suspicious connections to Russia. Recent loans to Trump, which were struck under highly unusual circumstances, may have been underpinned by financial guarantees from Moscow. The president's immediate family are also Deutsche Bank clients. The bank examined accounts held by Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, her husband, Jared Kushner, and Kushner's mother. And the Wall Street Journal reported that the CIA and others are willfully withholding information from Trump's team. They are fearful that sensitive intelligence might be compromised. The revelations have led many on the right to claim a soft coup is underway by actors in the so-called deep state. In related news, Trump is said to ask Stephen A. Feinberg, a billionaire investor with no intelligence experience, to lead an assessment of spy operations. Top intelligence officials are resistant, fearing that a review by a Trump ally with no experience would stifle their independence. The president blames leaks from the agencies, of course, for the departure of Michael T. Flynn, and he defended them again today. 
Trump named R. Alexander Acosta, a Florida law school dean and former assistant attorney general for civil rights, to become the only Hispanic member of his cabinet. And Trump also said he will issue a new executive order on immigration by next week. Justice Department lawyers asked a federal appeals court to hold off on taking action in a legal battle over his initial Muslim ban until that order is in place. Trump said the new order would, quote, comprehensively protect our country, and he hinted it would obtain new vetting measures for travelers. Finally, in a bizarre, rambling press conference ostensibly called to introduce his new pick as the Secretary of Labor, Trump assailed the news media, the intelligence community, and his detractors. In an hour and seven minute long conference, Trump made a series of grandiose claims and asserted that, quote, he had inherited a mess. The conference grew increasingly surreal as Trump then seemed to acknowledge the well-reported chaos surrounding his administration before claiming that his White House was a well-oiled machine. Trump also lashed out repeatedly with the media, which he called fake news, before defending Michael Flynn, that, of course, is the national security advisor who lied to White House staffers. Pushed by reporters to directly answer whether or not his campaign had any contact with Russia, Trump grew defensive and claimed he was unaware of any. Trump's approval rating is now the lowest it has ever been in the Gallup tracking poll at just 40 percent. These are the Trump diaries. Bill Ayers, the elementary education theorist and co-founder of the Weather Underground, appeared with Mike and Ed Klonsky on Hitting from the Left Friday to discuss resistance in the 1960s and how that legacy can inform activism today. Hitting from the Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, we're back um, to talk to our good friend uh, uh, Bill Ayers and Mike Klonsky, the senior citizens of uh, uh, Hitting Left. We're at WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. Bill, we've, we've uh, always been friends. What, uh, we first ran into each other, what, almost 50 years ago, I think. Oh, uh, maybe more than that. Uh, you're thinking 1966? Something like that. Yeah, I yeah. think maybe even before that. But we've known each other a long time, been through a lot together, a lot of campaigns. And frankly, I've never seen anything like we're looking at today. Well, t- what do you mean? Tell us. Well, I mean, for several things. One is, I think what what happened... Is you mean the Klonsky brothers on a radio show? There's that, <laughs> and the lump in radio. I mean, that's unprecedented. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think that we had a candidate run for president uh, against a neoliberal, warmongering, Wall Street uh, insider, uh, and he ran an explicitly fascist campaign. And he won, and he's been spending the last uh, several weeks trying to consolidate a fascist government. And I think the resistance is something I've never seen before. I was at the inauguration. I was one of the so-called million and a half people who were in witnessing the inauguration. I had tickets because my uh, congressman, Bobby Rush, didn't have many constituents who wanted to go. And since <laughs> I was in D.C., I went. And then we participated, of course, in all what, the action. What did since. you wear, Bill? I wore what I always wear, uh, jeans and a T-shirt. I had a Black Lives Matter T-shirt on. I carried a banner that said, Say No to Racism. And I engaged people in conversation with Bernadine Dorn, my partner, for about two and a half hours. It was extraordinary. And how, how did that go? How were you received? Well, I'd say, you know, in the main, we had, uh, you know, a, a, a... You're still here. so I'm I've still here. You. It was a complicated and sometimes fractious, but, but a good conversation. I'm a huge believer that you have to talk to people all the time. You have to talk to strangers. You have to get out of your comfort zone and talk to people you don't agree with. I, I'll tell you, Bernadine was amazingly effective saying to people when they would shout at us, she'd say, I bet we agree about more than, than you would imagine. And they'd say, like what? And she'd say, like, hungry people should be fed. And the response was usually something like, yeah, but not the government. But anyway, we got into it with several people. Um, I had, you know, uh, so I enjoyed it. But the next day, I enjoyed much more. And all the kind of gloom and, and depression that maybe people were feeling 
after November uh, dissipated very quickly because a spontaneous, unbelievably powerful, energetic, multifaceted, intersectional, as they say, demonstration burst out all over the country and all over the world. It was extraordinary. And uh, uh, you and I and Fred, uh, we, we, we've all been, uh, been through stuff like this before. Uh, we, uh, I know you were surprised at uh, Trump's election. Well, I was surprised for about a minute and a half, and then I had to remind myself what country I live in, and then I wasn't surprised anymore. But I was determined, and I was very lucky because I happened to be not sitting in my living room, you know, watching news. I was on a book tour, and that put me in contact with people. And, you know, one of the extraordinary things that happened was everywhere we went, even as recently as last week when I was in Detroit, they set up 15 chairs in the bookstore, and we had 75 people show up, not for the book, but for the opportunity to talk, to have a public space, to have conversation. Frankly, I think what you're doing here counts as that too. You've got, you're creating a public space by creating a public. I think that's essential in times like this, that we face each other and, and name the political moment. When you reflect back on, on our times uh, in the 60s, what, what, do you see things that are common uh, to, your, our, to our experience back then? Well, I mean, you know, I... Your experience and my experience does not start and end in the 60s. So we have been, right. you know, in many ways, I, I want to always argue that the 60s is a myth and a symbol. No one looked at their watch on December 31st, 1969 and, and said, said we're wow, in the 60s. it's almost over. But the experience you know? was real. Well, the experience was real, but the experience has held on, and the experience is what powers us forward still. So I'm just saying that to say I don't want to... I don't want the so-called 60s to act as a wet blanket on activism Well, let's not talk today. about the, the so-called right. 60s. Let's talk about our, our okay. experience so our and experience, the movement. My experience uh, is, a, you know, which I'm reminded of again and again, is starts with the idea that you can't be uh, an activist or a moral actor or a good citizen or a resident if you don't open your eyes and pay attention to what's going on. So our first challenge is to, uh, you know, as young activists say today, to get woke to be aware, to sp and it's not something you could do once and then put on automatic pilot. We have to be aware all the time. What I saw the day after the, the uh, inauguration was an awareness that was on the streets and palpable that I haven't seen maybe ever. It was extraordinary. And I think it was the result of people coming together, you know, really woken up by the fact that this, uh, this fascist government was about to, uh, uh, to take power and, or, you know, crypto-fascist, wanting to be fa aspirational fascist. And I think that that was very, very powerful. So we have to be awake. We have to keep paying attention. And then we have to do something. And that's what the day after the inauguration and the airport demonstrations and the demonstrations Mike mentioned yesterday, these are all an example of that. Then we have to rethink. But just one other point, Fred, and that is that, and you guys alluded to this earlier on, that the mess that we're in, permanent war, mass incarceration, the privatization of everything, including public schools. Uh, this mess that we're in is the result of a bipartisan effort over decades. And so the resistance can't really be led by NPR, the New York Times, or the Democratic Party. It has to emerge from the movements that are there on the ground now. Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter, uh, Undocumented and Unafraid. These are the things where I look for real possibility and right. hope. Right, but, but let's go back for a minute. To sure. the, because um, my recollection of my experience, at least in the, uh, from the, let's go back to like 67, 68, where there was also a split 
Or there was also an argument or a debate about what our attitude towards the Democratic Party should be. After all, it was a Democratic Party that was uh, waging the war in Vietnam and, and was, uh, there was this, I, I, I don't mean to go off too much, but that I watched, uh, we went to see the film, uh, I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin Wonderful. film, and there's this, Wonderful there's film. this uh, incredible scene where, where Samuel Jackson is the voice of James Baldwin, describes a meeting with Robert Kennedy. Uh, he's with Lorraine Hansberry, and they're, they're, at, they're really demanding that, that the Kennedy brothers uh, take a, a moral stand in defense of, uh, of Southern students who were trying to uh, integrate segregated schools, and Kennedy just blows them off. And, uh, and so there was this fight in the Democratic Party then, and now, and so what are the, and, and a lot of us, at least I, on my, speaking for myself, kind of rejected any activity within the Democratic Party, that they were the, they were the enemy. And um, even though there was, in fact, a, a division within the Democratic Party over the war in Vietnam and over, over civil rights, and, that, and today too. Uh, and so that's, so I'm trying to draw lessons what would we? What should we do differently, or well, should we do what we did? You know, I think we'll have to continue this conversation the rest of the day. But just in terms of a quick answer, <laughs> we to what only you have just an said, hour. Yeah. Oh, bummer! Yeah. Um, but I think in, in a quick answer is to say that we need to do two things simultaneously. One is we need to build the mobilization of people um, in the streets and in other venues, in other public spaces, because it's only fire from below that's ever brought about real change in this country. Lyndon Johnson passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation in history since the Reconstruction, but he wasn't part of the Black Freedom Movement. He was responding to fire from below. You read Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. It's a law and order speech in which he genuflects in front of the slave owners. Four years later, his, his words at the second inaugural could have been written by Frederick Douglass. What changed? Well, in Lincoln's case, of course, there was a war, but what also changed is that fire from below. The abolitionists never backed up and never gave up. So it's important that there are people uh, working within real politics, regular politics, um, to respond to the fire from below. But I sometimes worry that we spend too much time staring at the sites of power we have no access to, like the White House, like the Congress, like the Pentagon, like Wall Street, and too little time looking at the sites of power we have absolute access to, the I'll, community, the neighborhood, the school, the house of worship. That's where I want to spend my time. If you want to spend your time in the Democratic Party, that's cool with me. Let's keep talking. But how you work that out in balance is complicated, but we should never let go of the notion of fire from below. <laughs> Yeah. It's the Ism Show. This is, um, this is Betty Heredia. That's Uncle L. Yeah, yeah. What are we listening to in the background right there? Um, this is like a live living room jam session. And L, L came whatever. from Elevation? 
That's yeah, a, I mean, yeah. it's always L. I, see, like, I thought uh, it was a... Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> my I government like name starts with <laughs> the letter L. <laughs> everybody, so I, you know, I introduce myself as L. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows me as L. Yeah. It's simple because people tend to mangle my name. Yeah, see, I'm trying not to call you by your government name. Yeah, nobody does. <laughs> I, I might just change it. <laughs> to L. <laughs> yeah. Put on your birth certificate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you what your process is um, when you start out. Like, do you hear something in your head first before, or you start hands-on? Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, like, I'll hear a song. Like, it, sometimes I don't even sample. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, like, just be trying to, like, play different chords mm-hmm. and just feel it out. I mean, I'm, like, self-taught on that, mm-hmm. um, on that tip. But uh, if I'm sampling, like, I'll hear a song, and... Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear a part and be like, ooh, I could loop that, like that, mm-hmm. you know. And it might be like a couple seconds, you know. Uh-huh. Or what I like to do is like in Ableton Live, like slice things up mm-hmm. kind of randomly and then play with the slices. Okay. So, you know, slice, chop, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Um, until, I, until I figure something out or mm-hmm. hear something in that way. Mm-hmm. So it's all experimentation, you know. Yeah. Um, that's actually probably my favorite way of doing things because it's really random and it's an easy it's it's a way to come up with something brand new i like to make a beat where the the sample source is unrecognizable right you know yeah right, right. <laughs> so uh, uh, uh but you get 10 seconds of a sample right before you get uh, come before right, i come right. after you yeah but then right. yeah there is a there's a beauty to just covering it up so you so what is that? Like the, I, I find myself doing that, trying to figure out, and it's mm-hmm. almost like a it's fun game and a way to learn. Uh, yeah. What 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 sample is that? What did they sample? You know, like right, right. Because you ever hear something and then uh, it could be like some classic hip hop track, mm-hmm. and then uh, someone will play, you know, the sample source material to you, and you're like, what? No. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I like that reaction. Or, or you see like different, um, different artists took that source, you know, and they do and they did a, a different way, different thing, yeah. So and um, like with me, that whole thing came from I was in this Facebook group mm-hmm. called the Beat In, mm-hmm. uh, where we would do a weekly chop uh, every Friday. So Monday, Tuesday, you get the song to sample, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like thirty producers. And everybody does it their own way. Yeah. And so Friday, you just post it online, and everybody like listens to each other's stuff, and they're like, "Oh man, I can't believe you did it that way," or "It's crazy how that came out," you know, yeah. or "I would have never thought of this," you know. Yeah. So um, that's kind of where I get that mentality from, uh, you know, because I used to be like, when I would hear someone reuse something that someone else did, mm-hmm. you know, someone someone else did and made like a classic song from it, you know, yeah. I'd be like, man. Why are you gonna do that? Again? Why are you gonna reuse that? Right. You know, like like, exactly, like yes. let it be what yeah, it is. Uh-huh. You know? Nah, but now I'm like, everything could be done, redone a different way, reimagined because it's the same thing with DJing. I always feel like I could give you all my whole library, all my records, all my MP3s, whatever. You'll never be able to play them like I play them. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh-huh. You're not gonna be. I mean, right. <laughs> it no, like it's, it's true. It's, boastful, it's, but fresh as me, you know the way I DJ. You know, because you have a distinct voice. You exactly. Know? Like I'll, you, I'll hear you. I'm like, oh, that's that's Al. You know, that's Uncle Al, and that's what I think sets a lot of people apart. Like, um, 
the same with you know, like Crush or, yeah. or, or Radius, you know, and you hear them like, I could have my back turned and turn around. My <laughs> we have guests here. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I can have my back turned and I just hear, and I'm like, oh, I know who's who's right now. I know who's right. producing right now or who's, who's DJing right now. Yeah. And there's something really, you know, you wouldn't think it, right? Someone else who doesn't really, doesn't have that ear trained or isn't used to listening you know to beats that more listens to more traditional yeah. rock music say or something they wouldn't you know it, it's and, like it's and those of, those are the people i like to play my music for you know yeah <laughs> right, because right. i want to hear how how they interpret yeah it, you know? yeah yeah definitely you know it's like um with like jazz too i mean you know when you get to start hearing players you know you know you know mm-hmm. you hear oh i know whose horn that is you know mm-hmm. <laughs> right like so yeah um you were on uh king hippo's show Right. And the fresh roasted. Right. Um, and there was more questions, but I'll remember. <laughs> them. Go ahead. Um, shout out to Hippo. Like yeah. he's he's doing great things. Yeah, um, definitely. In this 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 beat community that yeah. we're cultivating. Um, fresh mm-hmm. roasted, if those for those who don't know, mm-hmm. is a live beat making battle, um, and uh, he usually hosts it like a monthly at the Whistler in Logan mm-hmm. Square, and. Um, so you get three producers, beat makers, uh, two record collectors, and they present records to the beat makers to sample live. And you get 90 minutes to make a beat. And the crowd judges, um, you know, you play the beat when you're done, crowd judges, and they pick a winner. Um, so we brought that concept to Lumpin' Radio uh, last Friday night. Mm-hmm. But... To kind of up the ante even more, you had six beat makers randomly paired off into teams. So I was, uh, it, w- it was me, Coz, uh, Elijah Jamal, also Push Beats, um, Pipe Attack from Push, uh, let's do Rimsky, and Azarius. Mm-hmm. And I wound up paired up with Azarius who I have always like listened to his stuff and really admired his like percussive work. Mm-hmm. Um, How was that decided? Did uh, we did, we did we literally pulled numbers? Yeah, out okay. of a little bucket. Okay. <laughs> so there was like Team A, Team B, Team C. So you know you mm-hmm. put, like papers with that name uh-huh. with that team name on it. And uh, yeah, it was really random. And it seemed that everybody that got paired together fit. It was like perfect, perfect match. Um, and I would have liked. Or I would like in the future to collaborate with him more, like closely, where we actually like with uh, who with uh, Azaria, oh, okay, where we actually like really give more input into like one track. Because mm-hmm. what we wound up doing was in just working side by side, like we um, just started in our own workstation, and then we kind of like check in and we're like, all right, let me hear it. Uh, all right, thumbs up. Cool, keep going. You know, mm-hmm, so yeah. but it was kind of like this natural thing, um, and then at the end we just kind of fused them together to make one long track. When you you you've been telling me how you work with a lot of other cats, right? Like when you um, like down in Austin, Texas, or um, have you ever had a in a time where it wasn't? It seems like uh, always for, from what I hear is that it's always organically just making this music like you'll meet someone that you met for the first time maybe or worked for with for the first time and then you start um you just create together which i think is a beautiful 
thing, right? You, yeah. It's like someone. I mean, but um, have you ever had one one of those an in- a time where it, you just didn't drive with somebody? Well, it's never like that simple. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> as yeah. far as like, it, it, I feel like it's always one of the other person takes the reins and is yeah. kind of you know mm-hmm. in charge of the that situation mm-hmm. um like i i collaborate with uh with crush love uh-huh. uh, we, we we haven't in a while we need to finish some things that we started <laughs> but uh but even then it's like wherever you're at if you're in that person's workspace mm-hmm. you know then they're kind of like leading leading it yeah yeah and then i just kind of try to chime in you know okay. um and, 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 and throw my, my little flavor on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's difficult to really, like, truly collaborate and, you know, really mix it up mm-hmm. as where both people have, you know, even influence on the track or whatever. And I, I imagine it gets even harder with, like, more than two people. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to... Um, I've been dying to hear that, that track here that... Cause you won the first Oh yeah, that was that, the right? thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. me and Azarius, uh-huh. team. It was like Team B. Uh huh. And I mean, shout out to the people that voted on the, the Lumpin Radio Facebook page. Um, I, that was really dope. Like, you know, <laughs> it was all live in the moment. You yeah, know, we right. played the beats, and then boom, we had the results, and we had like fifty some percent of the vote. So out of three teams. So that was love, man. We, we appreciate all you people out there that was actually listening. Because that's the thing. We come on, you do things like this, and you're yeah. like, oh, is anybody even... I would have tuned in. I was working. Oh, so okay. I, I was yeah. working. I let, I I let that I was slide. like, what? <laughs> that's why I'm like, where's the archives? I need yeah. to hear this. Your excuse. Your excuse. <laughs> well, and then shout out to Mike Handler, too, who came up with the whole idea of the team thing. And he was also uh, DJing live on air while we were creating oh. so it was like him and hippo back and forth mm-hmm. uh, like an hour piece or whatever yeah. you, you gotta you gotta play that so yeah i got can it can you share it with us i have it you have i it? happen to have, have it, it with me right on. you listen to ism show this is betty heredia and that's uncle l and uh, i'm here every second and fourth monday of the month four to six p.m chicago Ed Comenda, formerly of DNA Info, joined John Daly, Jamie Trecker, and Ed Marzuski on Radio Free Bridgeport to talk about his favorite published stories and the ones that didn't make it off the cutting room floor. Radio Free Bridgeport airs every Tuesday drive time from 4 to 6 p.m. Ed Comenda is here with us today. Ed Comenda, late of DNA Info, one of the uh, neighborhood oracles. How you guys doing? Doing good. <laughs> doing well. Ed, you've been, on the show, you've been on the show a couple times, and, yep. and we've always had a good time. You uh, came on and talked about moving to the neighborhood, um, the types of stories that you wanted to write last time. Um, that, you know, that was almost a little over a year ago. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the types of things you learned. We were talking about uh, a, a piece you did on, on someone who's very close to my family, uh, Father Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you've done, you've done a ton, a ton of those. Tell us a little bit about that story, uh, and, and some of the other folks you've, you've met and learned about the, in the neighborhood. Well, if you don't mind, I'd rather try to figure out what's going on with Ed. What, 
Are you going to be continuing to hit the ground with stories about Bridgeport, the community of the future, in he, this new position of freedom that you have? Yes, I will, but it's going to take a different form. It's not going to be with uh, DNA Info. It'll be on my own with whoever's willing to publish. <laughs> so You came to the right place. Eddie. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, but, absolutely. you know, what were the, some of the highlights of your gig at DNA Info that you thought were uh, kind of seminal moments for your career here as, as a, as a day, whatever, 24-hour journalist? Seminal moments? Stories? What were your, yeah, what were your key, favorite key stories? stories? Yeah. Favorite stories. They were the people's stories. Um, I mean, I've, I've profiled the people at Veteran Tamale, which is not in Bridgeport. It's in... Right on the right on the. We're board. claiming it. Yeah, it's ours. We'll claim it. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people yeah. uh, shop there, but I love the people story. So the ones that that come to mind are you know hanging out with Neighborhood Watch, um, even some of the Caps meetings. Just just meeting people that that really love the neighborhood and are really passionate about what's happening and really care about how things are done here. Um, talking with Rudy at Martinez, you know about the the three pound burrito. I mean, I go in there, and uh, apparently they're expanding to, to become a restaurant now. Yeah, so. thanks a lot for telling everybody about that. Yeah, yeah. I had to. I have to wait I, a little bit longer than usual to get my torta, Ed. <laughs> I mean, I am happy so for Rudy, though, of course. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I've, I've done a lot of stories with, with Alderman Thompson. That that was always a lot of fun, talking about how uh, he shaped his vision and, and what he uh, would like Bridgeport to look like in three or four years. Um I was gonna. I was gonna answer. Um, one of my favorite stories was actually the the Father Flynn story, which which John just mentioned. And what's interesting about that is here you have this neighborhood priest who studied psychology. So he would give, you know, mass on Sundays multiple times during the week, and then in the off hours he would uh, coach, um, you know, neighborhood folks on how they could get better sleep or deal with nightmares or you know, uh, get over a fear of flying. I mean, this is this is a Bridgeport guy. Um, I think when he left the, the parish, uh, I forget, it was 40-plus years that he was with that parish. And just to sit down with him uh, and talk about his journey in Bridgeport was, was, uh, was a real treasure to me. And I got to do many stories like that. And uh, Father Flynn was one of, the, one of the better ones, I'd say. Yeah, you know, a neighborhood uh, Catholic priest who, uh, as as you said, is a clinical psychologist, and and you know <coughs> the kind of nature, and I'm I'm sure there's kind of, uh, uh, you know, dueling forces in, in in those two approaches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he with this pope though. Yeah, he told me uh, his favorite thing about being a priest was being in the confessional and and pretty much being a psychologist for the neighborhood. Uh, people that did really bad things or maybe not so bad things but felt really guilty about them. And he's a real guy. And uh, that was um, – it's not so often that you, you interview people and you um, come away with with something that feels like a gift. And talking with him was like a gift. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun, and I'm glad I got the opportunity to do that. Ed, what attracted you to the neighborhood in the first place and kind of what, what made you interested in this – little, you know, kind of weird cul-de-sac here in Chicago. Bridgeport uh, specifically has is, is been a part of my family for my entire life. I mean, uh, my mother grew up here uh, not too far on Poplar, 29th and Poplar. My father ran a comic book shop and a card shop at 35th and Damon. Um, I'd been away a long time growing up in, in Midway after, after uh, 
uh, you know, grammar school and going to high school at St. Lawrence. So when I got the opportunity to come back to Chicago to cover Bridgeport, the thing that attracted me here was the reputation as this real pocket of Chicago, this place that's no BS, the place that uh, is blue collar and a place that is very colorful. And that's exactly what I found when I got here. Um, it took six months to probably a year to to warm up to people, um, not because I was cold, but because in Bridgeport, you know, people really value their family and friends. And when an outsider comes in, they're just not going to let let you in. Uh, so uh, I was attracted to that that attitude because it's very much the attitude that I, I was brought up around, you know, trust is earned type of thing. Um, but also just how things are changing here and, um, you know, the, the demographics of the neighborhood are so uh, diverse and the people you see walking down the streets, I mean, it's a million stories in every home here. And that was a very attractive thing to somebody like me who's interested in the story. So as far as Chicago neighborhoods, I don't think you could beat Bridgeport as far as the types of people you meet and the stories you find. So that's kind of a long roundabout way of answering it. But yeah. What were the stories that uh, that didn't make the page? What was something that was uh, out there? Well, um, <laughs> something that's out there. I did a story about this place called the Ballpark Pub uh, over on Pershing Road. And uh, it's a it's a business from the Bertucci family, and the Bertucci's run the uh, the Chai Sox Grill over at uh, U.S. Cellular Field or Guaranteed Rate Field now. Sorry, um, we're still calling it Comiskey. You'll call it Sox Park. Sox Park <laughs> yeah. So so I walk into this place, and there's a mural on the back wall, and it's the the outfield of Sox Park during Disco Demolition Night with that plume of smoke rising into the sky, and in the in the smoke, I saw a face, and from where I was standing, it looked like uh, the face of Mayor Daly, um, the first one. And I said, is that the mayor? And um, Richie said, no, that's Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, Benjamin Franklin, why is Benjamin Franklin in the, in the smoke of this, you know, disco demolition painting? He said, oh, well, the guy who painted that picture is one of the... Uh, most prolific and and well-known counterfeiters in American history, and he lives in the neighborhood, Art Williams. There's a book written about him called The Art of Making Money. And I was like, I got to do this yeah. story. So so yeah. he lives on, you know, I'm not going to say where he lives, but he lives very close to the studio. And I met with him, and the guy is an amazing character. And... um his story will be told one of these days. I don't know if it's going to be a story, you know, radio story or if it's going to be a magazine piece. But what's interesting to me is the fact that he turned his life around after serving federal prison to um, he, he went from being a counterfeiter to being an actual artist. So he still makes um, counterfeit bills, but they're about 10 times the size oh, of an actual beautiful. bill. And he puts people's faces on them like, you know, Michael Jordan or... Um, Genius, you know Chicago people, and he he sells them for like ten grand a piece. Um, but he's turning his life around. He actually has a novel he wrote in prison, uh, which is a fantasy novel, and oh, wow. uh, so he'll geek out on Lord of the Rings and you know um, Tolkien and all that all that good stuff. So that's one of them. <laughs>
Hello and welcome. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. We are Duncan McKenzie. Ryan Peter Miller. And I'm Richard Holland. And today's guest, Guy Richard Smith. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chicago. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So you uh, are in Chicago because tomorrow night at Acre... That's correct. Uh, you are doing a screening of a show you do called The Gross Mollerman Show. The Gross Mollerman Show. It's a five-part sitcom in the uh, classic sitcom tradition, shot in front of a live studio audience, multi-camera, on a stage set. So who is Gross Mollerman, and uh, what's going on with that? Uh, Jonathan Gross Mollerman is a, uh, uh, a megalomaniacal, uh, buffoonish uh, contemporary painter who um, has uh, a, a world around him, uh, uh, his... His idiotic assistant, um, his uh, his girlfriend, on again, off again, Muse, um, and uh, and he's uh, he's kind of down in the dumps. Uh, his career is taking a bit of a, is it in the middle of a bit of a slump, and he gets offered his uh, dream, his a comeback show by his dream gallery, and that's where the story begins. So, having watched a number of the Gross Mollerman shows over the years, and knowing that that. Jonathan Grossmullerman was a guest on Bad at Sports years and years ago. Years ago, he was. Uh, the uh, he he always struck me as kind of a cartoon of many a white old man painter in our art world. Yes, yes. And he makes these paintings that feel very reminiscent of these kind of figurative gestures of like a, I mean, maybe more of a painterly Alex Katzy kind of thing. Although the subjects are quite often uh, sexual, hey, explicitly so. Yeah. Matissean also. They, they have a Matisse quality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Maybe the quality of Matisse. The <laughs> you know, there, there are few people who've done as much damage to the art world uh, in recent years uh, as Nick Nolte did in his portrayal in of uh, New York Nights. stories. Yeah. Right. I mean, his, his, <clears throat> and we're not going to mention names, but there are people here in Chicago's art world that pretty much... Like it's like cosplay for them, right? Right. I actually, um, when I was in my early twenties, I spent an evening with the guy who was the painter that 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 he was based on, and he did all the paintings for that movie. I'm amazed that he was based on one painter because he was pretty much most of the professors that I ever had. <laughs> so you've been doing uh, the character for since 1996 uh, in grad school. <laughs> What? Yeah, yeah. Those for the first videos I did of him doing stand-up were in 1996, um, and at that time I was living in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and there was a generation ahead of me of artists who all would, you know, were dirty and would have car hearts on, and that they wouldn't take off, and were getting into alcoholism and boring the crap out of me with conspiracy theories. And uh, you know, over the years, I've, 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 I've become more sympathetic to the character. As, as you face down your own alcoholism, as you wear your own car hearts? Yes, as, my, as, I, as, I, as I start to wonder, like, well, maybe there is a conspiracy. I, but I do feel like that, that guy you're sketching out is a kind of New York tradition and has been since the New York school. Absolutely, absolutely. And I grew up in New York, and so I grew up in a city that was basically, you know, third and fourth rate de Kooning paintings in every living room. And uh, there, there was an, an admiration for this kind of a character. The kind of hard-nosed painter guy who's cranky and lives in his own world and everyone's there to enable him. Exactly, exactly. But it's, it's interesting. This has also been a regular topic of discussion uh, because 
there's this myth of the artist that I think is almost taught in schools where you're supposed to be sort of an outsider and difficult and, uh, you know, that person basically. Like, I think a lot of art schools encourage this sort of uh, poor behavior and uh, and generally uh, antisocial psychological problems in, in their students so that they all eventually aspire to grow into that person one day. Well, when you have all these people who are, are socially inept to begin with and then they're taught to sort of indulge their narcissism, it, it, you get that kind of thing happening ultimately. When you put a bunch of them together. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, because you're all struggling to make yourselves unique in some sort of way, right? So your personal damage is what you brought to the party. Yeah. Crowding individuality. <laughs> oh, I feel so boring and vanilla in my middle class lifestyle <laughs> in Oak Park. Ryan, are you keeping it real? I am keeping it very real. I'm just uh, thinking, so the the show, is it structured in a similar way to um, traditional sitcoms? Um, like, what are you sourcing as your motivation, inspiration for those, the structures within the actual program you're making? Well, one of the things I, I'm fascinated by, fascinated by in my work and uh, is structure. And uh, what I love about the classic sitcom is the, sort of the efficiency, the economy of getting as much culture out as possible in this very, you know, these th- three doors and a, and, a, and, a, and a sofa. And I was very lucky many years ago to work on a Mike Smith project that was being directed by this guy, Joshua White, who... Among, he's, he's a legend for a, num- a number of reasons, one being that he ran the psychedelic light shows at the Fillmore East in the 60s, did the light shows for, for, um, for Woodstock. And then he kind of slipped into, he kind of slipped into um, uh, television doing rock shows. And uh, one thing led to another. He does, he, does, um, uh, he ends up doing uh, uh, Max Headroom and then directing a few Seinfelds and uh, directed things, a real professional guy and I, I started talking with him about it and he I told him about this character and how I've been wanting to put him in this completely absurd situation and he's like let's do it um so uh so I had I got the history of the sitcom and how it's done and you know every trick in the book how you edit the sitcom how you how you get out of a tough situation in a shit sitcom um uh all from you know the mouth of a, a, a very accomplished uh director a legend. A legend. So uh, sitcoms are often like morality tales. I'm thinking about like Norman Lear, the those kind of early 60s, 70s sitcoms. Um, do you structure your show kind of around that? Is there Are there lessons being taught or is it kind of that an anti-aesthetic where it's like uh, uh, kind of everybody's the dunce? Uh, there, besides, you know, we follow a lot of rules. Like there's, you know, you have to have the straight man. Everyone has a trajectory. You know, it's, it's a definitely a do-it-yourself version of all of it. Um, uh, we, we did it as close to, you know, and, and again, we, he directed all the episodes. And so we were able to follow um, uh, those rules. But no one, no one really, no one learns anything. Um, so it's a, it comes, you know, it comes through that way. There's no, every time someone um, has a close sweet situation they're either trying to commit to you know double suicide or they throw up on the other person
WLPNLP Chicago News from the service entrance, the radio show on Lumpin Radio. What's going on, everybody? It's Mario. We're live at the Co-Prosperity Experience Studio B. Glad you all are with us this afternoon. My guest today is Janice Bond. Janice Bond is an artist, a curator. I want to uh, finish talking about the, those things. The, the uh, Wall of Respect exhibit, by the way, runs from February 17th until October 31st at the DuSable. So please uh, know that. Yep, Project Respect. Yes, yep. mm-hmm. looking forward to that. Um, what else you got? Oh, well, I, before I forget, which I didn't forget, but I want to make sure we had make, we make note mm-hmm. of um, the artists who are participating in this. Yes, I am curious. Yeah, yeah. So a few of my favorites, I get excited every time I say their names. So um, Arthur Wright, mm. uh, Sonia Henderson, uh, Max Sansing, um, Tony Smith, mm-hmm. Sam Kirk. Um, it's slang. A slang, my man, Tony yeah. Smith, my man. I wonder if Tony used one of my pictures. Maybe. I'm going to have to go and see. Yeah, he has a video installation of interviews um, that are, is going to be running for the duration. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, along with all this stuff, and uh, we can get back into that too, the current, and I, and I, and I know I ask this a lot, and I only, it, 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 it keeps coming up because the climate keeps changing every week. But the artist has always had the final say and had that voice and had that ability to be able to sway opinion, create dialogue, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Three babies die in three days here, murdered. Uh, To say it's out of control is an understatement. There's this albatross hanging over the city of the president threatening to bring in the feds. Um, then you have the mayor who's combative with that and saying, well, if you're going to bring in the feds, what we need is money. And we need, he's now saying that we need resources, we need money. Um, the role of the artist in this time, in this exact time, in your opinion, what do you, and I am not implying that there aren't people that are, are not doing what they're supposed to do, because I know better than that. Mm-hmm. But what would you say the role of the artist is in this climate right now? The role of the artist in this climate right now is for them to create work that speaks to them. And if they choose to do, if what what speaks to them um, is also something that speaks to others, then that's great. And I say that this way, and I'll give it more dimension. I want to make it clear, like my position is not that Every artist, particularly artists of color, particularly artists who are black, um, it is not a requirement that they shift their entire creative practice to 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 create counter narratives mm-hmm. um, or create anything. You know, they can go on break right now if they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone interprets things differently. Everyone feels differently about things, and even if they felt the same, the beauty about art is that it may manifest in different ways and so I do believe you know what is what did say um Nina Simone said something it's like the duty of the artist is for them to reflect the times I believe that that's true um I believe that those reflections may differ and we have to as a creative community be willing to embrace that as well so I'll say for example some artists their approach may be a bit more direct right Mm -hmm. posters you know protests um, direct, you know, photography, you look at it, you understand it, you know, for the most part. 
um, mm-hmm. more figurative, you know, even typographical, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that may directly draw a line or, you know, a stream from whatever is happening to how they feel or reflecting what others feel. Um, for others, it may be um, inserting a beautification, you know, may not have what people like to coin as a social justice element, but perhaps they feel like there needs to be a more beautiful um, in, in their, whatever they decide is beautiful to them, a, a counter narrative that really lifts up the beauty um, in this world or in their community or in the neighborhood or a set space or place or person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of them are are right and well and cool. I think that it's just important that we make and that we create and that we converse and that we collaborate and do it often and volume, and for those who are not creating, um, for them to share and to encourage and to inspire, and for those who do none of the above, buy it, <laughs> right? <laughs> buy it, right? Buy it, share it, tell people, hold it in your space, um, right. um, create spaces in your in your home, in your venue, uh, in your gallery, in your. Uh, place of worship um, and your place of politics, even whatever it is that you think is is accessible to you for these creatives, for these artists, for these placemakers um, to to share this vision. And I bring it up because um, there are certain movements that are afoot as we speak right. um, involving artists, not just visual artists, but recording artists and dancers and, you know, arts. Mm-hmm. The arts has always been that thing that that people look to for that direction and that voice. Um, we I was thinking on the way over here. You know, there was a time when you could depend on a certain person to be able to speak for people, and that time has passed. I think. I, I I'm not saying that it's it's dead. I just think that to look for your to look for someone with the 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 uh, audacity to speak out loud like a Malcolm X or the audacity to risk their lives like a Martin Luther King or even the audacity of someone who has a lot of things that people question like a Jesse Jackson. Those people looking for that is is akin to looking for someone to come sliding out of the sky and to save everybody. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, well, I think that is, you know, it doesn't work that way and there's a couple of reasons why, and I'm not going to give all of them, just a few, but, you know, it's it's not that it's, completely gone away that people are, are sharing and, and pushing and mm-hmm. risking, it again looks different. You know, um, there Granted, is, there yeah. is, there is not a, there is no next James Baldwin. There is no next Nina Simone. There is no next Malcolm X or Dr. Martin Luther King. There may be people who come into our space, um, that are influenced by them or may make you think of them. Mm-hmm. But, the times in which they created the work that they did, you know, you're talking about life risks at all times and at all fronts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so now you have people that are, are sharing their work and their their risks may be different. And you're also talking about location, you know, especially, you know, speaking to uh, black and brown people. You know, when you talk about people who are, um, I know a filmmaker, you know, who is, a queer who is living in Kenya, um, who is 
creating podcasts and video out there, mm-hmm. you know, where people are actively being harmed and even mm-hmm. murdered mm-hmm. Um, for being anything other than heterosexual. Um, and, you know, does, you know, her doing that same work here is different. Mm-hmm. You know, if she was here in Chicago or, you know, in New York, you know, you're talking about a completely different, different landscape, you know. So I think that the movement has been decentralized, but not completely fragmented in the way that people, some people articulate, you know, but we can't look for, we can't look for 1967 because 1967, and I just say 1967 because that was when the Wall of Respect was created. And when I was born. But that, you know, that, that, that time has passed, but it has influenced you know, many generations of mm-hmm. people who took different risks. I look at like slang, for example, you know, okay, cool. So, you know, he's doing a lot of, you know, commercial work. And, you know, now you have um, uh, graffiti artists. They're considered also now muralists mm-hmm. and they're getting gallery shows and museum shows and different things like that. When there are several great, you know, writers, you know, graffiti artists, or, you know, if you want to call them muralists, now it's depending on who's funded it and who's funding it and where it's located and who they are. Now it's, you know, it's public art. But when he started, you know, there are artists out here right now in this city that have felonies because of what they're doing. Now, true enough, some people were doing some things that were less desirable um, with their work, but, you know, they 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 had this spirit of creating space for their own voice wherever they could, you know, by any means. And, and having that autonomy was worth the risk. You know, mm-hmm. some of them risked their lives in order to be able to express themselves because there wasn't a vehicle or a venue um, that they could do it, you know, safely or legally at that time. Times have changed. Mm-hmm. But they're still relevant even now today, which is why I have a lot of those artists, you know, pulled together for that that particular project. I think it's very valuable, too, to say that this city, uh, not unlike many other great cities here in the United States, but Chicago in particular, is the home of a lot of talented human beings, They're man, saying. on every level of the spectrum. Yeah, It's can, scary how yeah. many really talented individuals there are that live here. Yeah, and, and intergenerationally, not yes. just like new breeds. You yes. know, you're talking about... Decades of, I mean, you're talking about legacy. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.